Hi, I'm Kenneth, and this is the Unspeakable Vice podcast, where we talk about talking about sex. Sex is a dirty word, a taboo. It's something that just isn't talked about, and we're going to dig into why. So today I've got my friend Satvik with me, and uh, we're going to talk about religion and desire. Satvik, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, hello, everyone. I'm Satvik. I am a Wayne State student, undergrad, studying neuroscience and health psychology. Um, I met Kenny, Kenneth through Mind Meditate, which is a club that we started at Wayne State like almost a year back. And it's, it's a pleasure to be on here. It is a pleasure to have you here. Um, so th- one of the reasons that, uh, that I wanted to talk with you about this is because you're, I, I, I wouldn't, I mean, you're sort of an expert, but you're more, you're, you're a student of religion. And I think that's the point here. Uh, you've been studying not only Eastern religions, but uh, also religions in general. Um, so I'm, I'm uh, happy to have your insight into, um, into what we're talking about. From my perspective, um, religion and desire are, overlap in a, in a way that um, sometimes can be troubling. And I don't think it needs to be. But uh, with, with my past experience with religion, uh, it's been all about telling me what I should or shouldn't think, what I should or shouldn't do, and that sometimes can cause shame, uh, which, which uh, uh, when it combines with desire, yeah. can be, can be uh, you know, difficult to deal with from, a, from an emotional and a, a sort of a mental health perspective. Exactly. But um, so before we get into the details, um, what, what do we mean when we're talking about religion? I know you've got some thoughts on that. Right. So when I think of religion, I think it's uh, some sort of combination of ethical conduct, some sort of moral principles, and, uh, and then also a philosophy of, of some sort of divine concept. So whether that be the soul, spirit, or uh, any, any sort of metaphysical concept connecting to the physical realm so so there's these two combinations so one is the material world where we live in and then so so each religion will have different sorts of principles of how you're supposed to live you know you're you're not supposed to lie you're not supposed to uh you know steal and these are basic principles but then they'll go on and on and on about how you should apply them in your real life and then they also have this concept of divinity which is you know, uh, a certain prophet or certain cult will, will say that this is the one that I follow. And that, that is because I, I'm a descendant of this prophet or I'm, the, I'm a descendant of the group that followed this prophet, which told this is the God. Um, and so this is basically religion at its core. And the reason why we have different religions, I think, is because of purely because of how the world is just how different prophets arose in different places in the world. So one prophet conceived of religion in this way, the other prophet conceived of religion in the other way. Like Jesus was in here and he founded Christianity. Buddha was in India, he found Buddhism. But it doesn't, I think because of the places and the locations, I don't think it, it necessarily means the religion is different. I just think it's because the prophets conceived of it differently and called it different. So I, that's that's my take on religion and how it kind of connects and yeah you know. you're and you're making me think of something that um uh Yuval Noah Harari was talking about and he 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 uh used the word fictions 
to describe these ideas and concepts that people create to try to make sense of the world. And when he says fictions, he's not necessarily meaning they're false, but they're, I guess, invented uh, in a way that they're, they're um, and, and so he's, you know, this can be applied to religion, that uh, religion provides sort of a, a way of thinking about things that isn't necessarily literal and it's not necessarily tied to like the physical world, but it's, it's a way of making sense of things and a way of putting things together, maybe simplifying things in a way that, that people can come together around the ideas and um, uh, uh, have, you know, have a common language for that. And, mm -hmm. and for me, um, I, that, that's one way that I like to think about religion is not that one's true and another one's false or something like that, but that each is sort of a, a different approach to trying to get at the truth or get at get at some yep. deeper understanding of of the world i guess and one quick point i like that is that um because religion the concept of religion always relies on understanding the truth there's this whole concept of knowing what is real who is who is the creator of all this world this is the basic question that all religious leaders question is like what is real about the world and who is who is the creator of the world and where am I? Who is, who am I? Who, like, what is a self? Um, and so I think this is what distinguishes religion and philosophy, but then we'll talk about that later. Um, religion has some sort of metaphysical concept, which is, which is why since it's beyond words, whoever tries to use these words always goes on in a different path. So the truth is something that can only be conceived through the mind and not through linguistic terms. And so when someone tries to take something that's not something that can't be used by words, suddenly it loses its, its essence. And then, then we have these inconsistencies and then, then we have the differences in religion. But essentially they're saying the same thing. It's just because the language is used differently, we, we, we appear to, or they appear different. That's what I mean. So let's talk about what you were just getting into, this sort of distinction between religion and philosophy, or, or what do you mean by that? And, and also um, thinking about the fact that most religions have some sort of rules or guidelines for how to behave, either, either how to act or how to think, or maybe both. Yeah, so, so when we talk about philosophy, we talk about some sort of way of life. Um, I, so the best analogy is like uh when you when you buy a car when you buy some sort of equipment it comes with a manual it comes with knowing how to build it or or it has some sort of step-by-step -step guide but there is no step-by-step -step guide to life right and some people say that's good some people say each one has to decide how they want to live and that's fine but religions aim to give you this manual or and, and but philosophies what they do is they don't give you a manual they analyze different manuals and come up with the basic underlying principle that is behind all these different religions. So one religion will give you a manual and say, this is how you live life. That's it. And that's what you're talking about, like how they, they tell you, they control your thought, they control your behavior, they control your. Right. Uh, right. And that, and that was kind of the experience that I had growing up uh, with uh, be, being in a Catholic church. Uh, there were a lot of rules. There were a lot of, um, you know, things that I was supposed to do or was supposed to not do. And the, the sort of why was maybe a little bit buried in there, but the, the point was 
somebody else sort of decided these are the things yeah. that are good for you these are the things that you should be focused on um so just do that but that's obviously so, not true for every religion right yes and so what philosophy does instead is instead of just telling you what to do and giving you the manual it tells you the why like you said and it also compares different philosophies compares different religions excuse me and uh sees what's the underlying principle behind them so we can say okay one religion may be biased the other religion may be biased but certainly if there's something a, a commonality between every single religion there must be something there there must be some sort of truth there if every single religion has a commonality and philosophy studies these basic concepts so almost every religion has a concept of uh uh, saying the telling the truth and so so philosopher philosophers like Socrates and Plato will ask like you know what is the truth why do we want to say the truth um, uh, most religions have some sort of basis on uh, sexuality like the thing we're talking about today desire why why do humans need to um, study desire and what what do different religions say but then how does it affect the human um, in this life and then in the, in the lives consequent uh, after that too. So this concept of uh, understanding why we're supposed to do something is always, always there in philosophy and it's not just blind faith. And um, yeah, so we are, we're, we're talking about a lot of different things here, but ultimately getting to that idea of desire and in particular sexual desire um, and, and desire, I think is, is um, a part that religion uh can be particularly focused on. And, and as I'm thinking about it, just as we're talking right now, maybe it's not the core of the religion itself, but it's more of the culture around it or the society around it that, that makes um, sexuality into a particularly pointed issue mm -hmm. um, with that. Um, so so most, most religions do address sexual desire in a particular way and regulate it or, or discuss it in a way that that has some significance and some more than others i know um there are many religious communities here in the west that uh uh make a see, seem to put that that particular issue higher up than any other issue um in christianity there's there's talk about uh um you know different forms of sin different different things that people can do less than the ideal and whether it's lying or stealing mm -hmm. uh but when it comes to uh sexual things that are that are forbidden or or uh, frowned upon uh that really seems to get people's attention in a way that uh um goes beyond the other issues um and i think at the core of the religion that's not necessarily true uh you know if you if you just read the, the literal text of the bible for example you know, all, all these sins are kind of put in the same level but when it comes to mm -hmm. the culture that's when when people sort of pick certain ones that they think are are particularly uh serious um and and sexuality tends to be at the top of the or near the top well the one one thing i would i do like to bring up is uh sometimes it becomes a hot topic because of because of how strongly it, because of this, because of its inclination to get people to follow you in a way. So this sense of authority that you're talking about, sense of control, uh, you can control a lot of people by by this topic. And uh, sociologically, it, it it gives you that locus of control. It gives you that ability to get people's attention, but then also repress them. And this is not a healthy way to control people. But a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of 
Western religions. In in some cases, I do some, see some instances of Eastern religions uh, using this topic of sexuality in in a way to control people in a in a in an un, unhealthy way. Yeah. So so that issue of control comes up, and like I said, maybe this is more cultural than at the at the foundation of the religion, but. But we've seen that in the in the Roman Catholic Church over its history and with the Protestant Church in the United States, that that uh, there's a, a structure that attempts to exert control uh, for, for one purpose or another, uh, whether it's, um, you know, obedience to the emperor or if it's um, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of the Protestant work ethic that uh, that sort of focuses people on being a good worker and contributing to the growth economy and, and driving industrial capitalism uh, in a way that, that creates profit for, um, uh, for, for people who are, who are in control of, the, of those social structures. But um, let's sidestep that and look at maybe the more virtuous aspects of religion yep. and philosophy that, that have to do with... Um, uh, either the individual approaching life and, and finding something good there or, or um, you know, even as a community, but not necessarily in terms of control, but rather in terms of, um, I don't know, spiritual prosperity. What, yeah. what, are the, what are the more beneficial things that can come out of religion besides, besides these control structures? Yeah, so, so religion, I think... Um, so if you can use it in two ways, so this is what kind of Karl Marx said, religion is the opium of, for, for people because it really can be used as a, as a terrible uh, way to control people. But, but that doesn't necessarily mean the, the individual religions themselves are evil. It just means that the phenomena of religion, it, just, it, it can be used in an inappropriate way. But I think there's appropriate ways too. So we can't just look at the one side of the coin. We have to look at the other side. And this way you're talking about the virtuous sides. So here, I, there's a lot of virtuous things. And I, I would like to specifically look at Buddhism here and see like, what are the five things that the Buddha pre- preached uh, that are virtuous to do so? Okay. Uh, I, think, I think you probably mentioned it. So the first one is saying the truth. Um, and this can have applications in like relationships too. Like always uh, making sure that you're saying the truth, nothing but the truth. And this is some sort of purity in itself, but then it also has sociological perspectives where you have better friendships, you have better relationships, you have better, um, uh, in general, uh, business corporations are able to, uh, you know, ethically work with people and not manipulate them and things like that. So uh, trust is a big one. So that's the first thing. Um, second one is um, not taking what is not, or not taking what is not given to you. Or so, um, so basically not stealing. So truth and then stealing, uh, not stealing. And then the third one is, um, the, the third one is uh, intoxicants. So making sure that you uh, don't take any mind altering drugs. Right. Uh, okay. Um, and then, uh, and then the, and then the fifth one is, uh, I'm missing one more. I forgot, but the fifth one is uh, mis- ethical or sexual misconduct. And so when he talks about sexual misconduct, it just means um, not having, one relationship and going out in the world and having all sorts of different uh, women or all sorts of different partners and not not having uh, a set person, a set partner with marriage. So that, those are the five that, things. 
Uh, let me just quickly finish. Sorry. So those yeah. are the five things that he kind of uh, mentioned. I forgot one. I'll, I'll try to remember as I kind of talk. Um, but I think these five, I think they almost comprise of everything we do in life. Um, there may be something else out there. Um, but it's important that we don't take these literally and, and say that these are the rules. Um, these five things basically guide you to live your life as, as an ethical person. And they do give you some sort of personal benefit, but then also as a, as a, it creates some sort of social harmony too. So, so this sense of control that you said, it's right. And a lot of priests do preach you know, and tell people to do this or that. But I think the fundamental core that the Buddha taught was working on yourself and not worrying so much about what the other person does. And if each individual works on themselves and does their work and follows these five principles, you can, you can think that there would be no sense of conflict here. And so this is exactly what we talk when we talk about, you know, um, doing it, doing your job and making sure that you do your work and not worry about what other person does. This is what we're talking about. This, we're talking about following the virtuous deeds and uh, making sure that you are an ethical person, regardless of what the other person does or says. And so this applies in relationships too. Like uh, if you work ethically in a relationship, the other person may not necessarily follow it. The other person may not re reciprocate your virtuous deeds, but, but that doesn't necessarily mean you abandon them. And this is where the whole principle of uh, uh, hatred cannot cease with hatred, hatred sees this only with love comes into place where uh, you, you have to have some sort of ethical conduct where where in uh, the basis of ethical conduct is true truth uh, not stealing uh, not uh, not, um, not having these mind altering drugs because the mind is the most important organ we have for rationality and then the missing one and the fifth one is uh, okay so I've, I've I've got the list in front of me now so so um, uh, not killing was one not killing yeah not stealing um the the uh refrain from sexual misconduct that you mentioned uh not telling lies or falsehoods and then not uh intoxicating the mind with with uh, um substances or whatever uh one one of the things what i was going to say is one of the things i like about the way the buddha um presents these is that they're sort of open-ended um and uh so so the one about intoxication for example um is, is sort of you know it says don't use intoxicants don't cloud the mind but it doesn't really go into detail about what what that actually means and so it requires uh, the individual to think about that and, and decide for themselves what what would be considered a clear mind what would be considered a cloudy mind and how to yep how to how to determine that the other the other part about usually how it's presented is it's um not just a negative but there's a there's a positive you know sort of counter aspect to that so yep. don't kill but then uh you know support the right to life and the kindness yeah. and compassion that goes along with that uh sort of you know sort of valuing life um so so and, you can look at it as either a negative or a positive yeah yeah and so the the last point that i missed was actually the most important one the value to life i think that's where all the other ones come into play too is because we have this fundamental core to value life not just ours but other people around us too and because we have this concept of valuing life and valuing um 
so when he talks about life, he doesn't necessarily mean the the physical life. He he also means the mental life too. So 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 the suffering people face okay. and and uh, and in general and making sure that you're not it's not just not killing people, but then also not not having this tendency to see people below you or this concept of uh, aggression and anger are also ways to kind of mentally kill them that if, if you if you uh, put it that way uh, so so in general just having a tendency to loving having this sort of loving kindness but then also making sure that uh, you don't develop these other attitudes like anger and aggression yeah so um so we're we're talking about some of these rules and some of these um guidelines um let's think specifically about desire how does desire interact with with these guidelines and i guess there's two ways that the rules we, we we've sort of gone into this a little bit but the rules can can sort of either prohibit or require or promote a certain behavior but mm -hmm. they can also um regulate or, or talk about certain types of thought processes and and um you know mental activity so how thinking about desire um there are some of those some of those actions well i guess i don't know if you have thoughts particularly yeah. about desire but but i guess yeah. thinking about those those um actions like don't steal well there's presumably a desire to possess something that you don't mm -hmm. have right yeah. so how do how how would you interpret those those rules just in general not not even just particularly the buddhist rules but uh yeah so in general there's always a a, a conflict regardless of what you have um there's always a conflict between the 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 quote-unquote good or what we call wholesome and unwholesome states or you know there's always a conflict between should i do this or should i do that there's this dualistic viewpoint that there's either the right or the wrong, this concept. Should I do this or that? And this conflict is what causes us to do uh, things that we regret and we may feel shameful of later or things like that. But if we get rid of this conflict, so desire in itself is not wrong. And the Buddha, when he taught desire, he said, the action of desire is not wrong. It's the craving that lies behind it. So taking particularly like stealing, for example, if you're in the moment of stealing something and it's absolutely required. There are moral dilemmas in certain cases where stealing can be justified. But if you're in the moment of stealing, then stealing is fine. But if you're thinking of stealing, uh, there, there are these thoughts, there are these crave, there's this craving that you don't have something and then you're in the pro you're not actually in the pro you're not in the present moment of doing it. You're actually, um, you're, you're preoccupied by the thought of doing it. That is what the Buddha says not to do, because that is a falsehood. That is something that your mind creates. Same thing with sexuality, and this kind of makes more sense, is that the actual deed of sex is not bad in itself. If you're doing it in the moment, go ahead and you know fully engage in the moment. But if you're craving for it, if you're not in the moment of doing it, and it but you're thinking about it, but you're kind of fantasizing and it's natural of course as human minds are so imaginative and we have the tendency to always go in the past and the future it's 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 common i'm not saying that it's, it's easy but we we have to understand that if it's not in the present moment it 
it, it tends to lead to suffering because that, that aspect of going for something that you already don't have is what creates dissatisfaction. And this is what the Buddha really wanted to teach. And that's why he had these five principles is because these principles are, are good uh, to follow guidelines. But if, if at some certain point you have to do them, it, it's okay, but make sure that you're not, you know, you don't have this tendency to do it again and again, again and again and again. And also just be aware of after you're done with it, how do you feel? What's the state of mind? The Buddha always asks you to reflect over yourself. And this is not just the Buddha, all other religions. I know um, in, in Christianity too, they believe that uh, you should always have some sort of question, questioning or some sort of rationality behind what you're doing. And so, uh, you know, if, if you read the Bible or if you go to the church, uh, there, there are also these discussion groups. I've, I've heard from some, some of my friends that they have these discussion groups come together in smaller groups and talk about these things because uh, not all churches do this, but some, some of the uh, Catholic churches do this where, where they encourage youth to come together. Uh, am I, am I, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I never, uh, personally experienced that with the Catholic church, but, um, uh, when I was in college, I was with a church group that, that every week they encouraged everyone to, to be a part of a small group and they, they helped, uh, uh, coordinate that. And it was exactly what you're saying. It was a time to sort of get into the discussion about the details and also sort of the practical aspects of, yeah. of how these are, how so, these you know, rules but, manifest during during a life and how to how to deal with them um, but do you I, get the point about how how it's not about the or, or the right or the action right that. and i think so i think about the, the it's definitely interesting I, to to think back to my um experience uh when i was uh in the catholic church and you know one of the rules of course is not to have sex outside of marriage and um mm -hmm. So I would, I would think about this rule and, um, you know, find, find myself, uh, just sort of fantasizing about sex in general. And, and, and then I would think mm -hmm. about that thought and, and say, well, okay, I'm yeah. thinking about in the loop sex, thought, but I'm not yeah. thinking about marriage. And, and so what, and, and there's even a, a you know, a, a line from the Bible. I don't have the exact quote, but basically it says, if you even think about, uh, someone else's wife, uh, you're already c committing adultery in your heart. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so that, that sort of thinking, th that sort of rules would, would get me thinking shameful thoughts about myself that because yeah. I had had these desires or fantasies or just, you know, ruminations, um, even though I wasn't presently acting on them and had no intention to just the, the thought, the, the fact that the thought was in my head made me feel like there was something wrong with me and that I should be doing something to not have these thoughts um, and so it ended up being a much more troubling issue than the thought itself, because I had all these other thoughts yeah. that, that went to, you know, how terrible this thought is. Um, so, how, so it goes just, back to the concept for, of present. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, so how right. would this, uh, how, how would the Buddhist approach, uh, look at that differently than what I was doing? Yeah. So, so the way you would look at it would be, okay, so I have a thought. And then I have a thought about the thought, right? And then so the, you have this cycle of thinking, thinking, and this is what creates the suffering actually. So, so in fact, in this case, the Buddha would tell you, it's not the action of sex that's bad necessarily. It's actually your own thoughts about it and your distinction of this is right, this is wrong. That is what is the root of 
your dissatisfaction here. And so what, what he would tell you is that instead of trying to suppress your mind into believing or suppress your mind to follow these rules, just engage your mind in the good things. Don't worry about suppressing these. These will naturally go away. Just engage your mind in virtuous deeds. And the more and more you engage your mind in the virtuous deeds, these unwholesome states or these, you know, quote unquote, unlawful things that religion may say as not good, they will go naturally. It, it happens naturally. You can't force yourself to get rid of something. It, just, it, ha it has to happen naturally. And it can only happen naturally when your mind is engaged in something good or something that's a step higher. And the other thing that I would say was realizing that there are dangers in certain, certain thinking. And so one of the dangers in, in the, this loop of thinking, I'm not good enough or I'm not, uh, you know, I'm thinking about bad things and things like that. One of the dangers is that you never fix the problem. You never mm. fix the problem. You just think about it. And so the way to fix the problem is to engage yourself in wholesome deeds. And so doing virtuous deeds, helping other people, volunteering um, um, and things like that. So, so you bring up a good point. Uh, I was actually reading about this today. So the, so the, uh, each of the five things that we talked about in, in, any, in general, any ethical conduct, there's a right view to it and the wrong view to it. And when you do the wrong thing, you feel like you, do the wrong, you have done the wrong thing. But in reality, you have just done something that the human mind has called wrong. So, so it's, it's labeled as wrong and has consequences, but you feel like you're entitled to that wrong thing. You're not entitled to that wrong thing. It just, it just what we have labeled as wrong, it's just something that has a cause and effect. That's it. So just because it has wrong or bad effects doesn't mean the cause itself is bad. It just, you know, it might be something that leads to bad effects. And that's why the human society has called it bad. But it's it, it just one action, right? So I think the bigger picture here is kind of understanding that um, what I was saying about earlier is that really, really making sure that you're not caught up in the cycle of trying to see this is right or this is wrong necessarily, but just doing your work, doing the virtuous deeds at every single moment. And then if thoughts come, let them come. Okay, I'm thinking about sex. Okay, I'm thinking about sex. I'll go back to doing work. I'll go back to reading. I'll go back to um, walking, whatever. Let the thoughts come. It's fine. You can't control the thoughts. You can only control your behavior. So, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So one, one thing that I was thinking, and, and this is maybe something that, that happens commonly in, in with, with people who have been raised in a Christian background, but I'm not sure. But anyway, so, so they might have a particular desire that they've labeled as wrong or that somebody told them was wrong. Say, I'm thinking about sex with, with a particular person who's, where, where it would be inappropriate to engage in that. And so I identify that thought mm -hmm. as wrong. And so what I might be inclined to do is substitute that with some, something else. Maybe I'll turn to pornography or alcohol or, or tobacco or something like mm. that, that can sort of give me a sense of pleasure that's, but, but mm -hmm. in a way that's not labeled as wrong. Right. Um, yeah. So, so it's not, and, and maybe it's a, maybe it's a wholesome and good thing too. Uh, maybe I can say, instead of focusing on sex with this person, maybe I can focus on uh, um, helping people in a, in a virtuous way, but it's still, you know, as a substitute to fulfill that, that sort of yeah. desirous yeah. need for, for something in, in myself. Mm -hmm. So I think, 
I, I think that's that's a, a tendency that people do sometimes. It's just substituting one desire for Substitute. another. Yeah. But yep. um, what what I uh, what I indicated was but make that, sure. So it's maybe, maybe in the Eastern thought is less about a particular desire and more about desire in general, right? Which is kind of what you're saying that you just sort of yeah. let the, let the desires come or let the thoughts come and then let them go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You want to, uh, does that, but, am I making make sense? Make sure you substitute. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, exactly. Exactly what you said. But when you do substitute, make sure you don't substitute to a worse behavior. So you always want to substitute to something that's a little bit higher. Okay. Okay. For example, stealing. So you have thoughts of stealing. So you're like, I'm going to substitute with the thoughts of, I don't know, um, <clears throat> having some sort of manipulation. I'm going to have some sort of um, stock manipulation or whatever, or some sort of unethical conduct of getting money. Um, that That is still worse than that. So that is you may perceive that to be better than stealing because you're not actually going out there and taking someone, you're indirectly taking it, but it, but it, it doesn't make it better. Instead, if you change it and you substitute with uh, something better, for example, like, okay, I don't have enough money. I need to get something. How about I ask my friend and, and do some, some work for him or, or not work necessarily or help him out and just ask him for some money, you know, that kind of get, so going back to the rules, that kind of gets the, the one that says not taking what is not given. You're asking for it. So of course it's violating it, but it's not violating it necessarily as much as stealing did. So you see what I mean by like substituting it with a little better behavior, just so you're not degrading yourself further. You're just improving a little by little. I guess uh, in Catholicism, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, I'm not quoting any experts, but uh, maybe the only... Or the or the best desire would be the desire for God, the desire to commune with God and to and to uh, experience things on on that ultimate spiritual level. Um, but and and so any other desire would be less than ideal, and maybe some maybe some are, less, you know more more you know be better than others but, uh... in, in some regard. But I guess what I'm getting at is that um, the the so in the, in, from the Buddhist perspective, it's, it's not so much a particular desire that's either good or bad, but it's desire as, as a concept way. in itself, right? This grasping at something that I don't have, whether that something yeah. is, is a, a beautiful person that I have, like to have sex with, or if it's, uh, you know, a fancy car or a great job or whatever, yeah, yeah. whatever it is that I mm -hmm. desire. I mean, we can say that some of these things are, are better than others in terms of, how they influence ourselves or influence other people's yeah. quality of life. But ultimately that desire, that grasping uh, is something that's, that's where the real issue is not in, yeah. not in the object of the desire, but in the desire itself. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. You were perfectly fine. I think I would like to add that um, when you, when you talked about the desire for God, I, I think it's a, it's a good perspective to have. Um, I think that perspective, naturally lets you go off the smaller desires and some people have a difficulty to do this but how about we word it differently how about we say the desire to be a good person just the desire to be a virtuous person and that in itself will motivate you to get rid of some of these maybe uh on um you know so quote unquote wrong things that we do that they're not really wrong but 
they're just lower desires. That, 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 that's all it means to. Uh, and, and instead we focus on just being a virtuous person. And there is merit to saying this. The reason why that desire is so strong is because it leads to better peaceful mind. And it's a calm mind. It, you know, if you do good things, the law of karma says, uh, if you engage in good things, naturally good things will happen to you. And so you don't have to do anything to be happy. It, it comes to you. It literally, you know, just like getting a car, you, you, you know, you crave for it and then you get it. But that's not real happiness. That's just a temporal view of happiness. The real happiness is, is something that you already have. All you just have to do is just look for it and just do the right, just do the good things. And it's not even dependent on good things. The good things just allow you to see it. The happiness is already there within you. And, and I think Christianity also has the same perspective that God is omnipresent. He's in you. He's, he's everywhere. And it, it just, you are not able to see him because of your impure mind. That's it. And so that similarly, uh, Hinduism and also Buddhism, and, and even I've read a little bit about Islam too. Um, they, they, they all say the same thing is that God is everywhere, but because of our impure deeds and our impure minds, we're not able to necessarily perceive him. I like that. Yeah. Uh, a, a couple of days ago, you shared a quote with me um, from, from the Buddha, I believe, where uh, he said, there is not a single unwholesome state as strong as the craving for the attractiveness of the female for a man or a man for a female. Uh, never mind the the uh, the heteronormative undertones there, but obviously he's talking about um, attraction and, and probably sexual attraction, right? Um, yeah. What what what's what stands out to you about that particular claim, and why do you think that's so strong? That that particular craving is so strong. Yeah. So the first thing I would say is that if the Buddha did, did see someone that was gay or non-binary he would have probably mentioned that too but it was just that he never saw anyone in india at that time that was like that that's why his language is like that um and, and so in fact there are in, in hinduism i've seen many goddesses and even in tibetan buddhism there's many deities that are that are seen as male and female together so the first of all i would just like to say that the 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 religions of hinduism and buddhism do not deny uh uh, non-binary um, sexual identities and other gender roles. But here, what the Buddha is saying is um, he's mentioning that the biggest hurdle to, to overcome is, is the attractiveness because it, it really is conditioned deep within our brains. And, and at that time, we didn't have knowledge of neuroscience, but now we do. And we realize how strongly the de desire for for being in love and not just being in love, but, uh, but this, this uh, desire for sexuality or this intercourse, sexual intercourse is so strong and it's conditioned because think about it this way, right? Every single being that came into existence had to reproduce in some way. And, and so reproduction is something so ingrained. If we are alive, it's, it's because of reproduction. And, and so naturally, the, the way nature works, and you, you, don't, you don't even need God in this case, the, the way nature works itself is it's self-replicates. And the only right. way nature can, it, it can do this is by having a strong system that allows people to, to, to reproduce and have this desire for reproduction. That's the only way nature can work. And so it's inbuilt in our nature to have this strong desire. 
And that's why the Buddha says this is the strongest desire because this is something that is so hard to overcome because it's the fundamental principle of life. If we can overcome this, then we have overcome everything. And, and it's not necessarily saying that you have to overcome this right away, but have this mindset or have this mindset that, you know, at some point, I'm going to have to let go of this too. And it's going to be hard, but I, I, at some point, whether it be now or later, if I get old, a lot of times old people do get this perspective that, you know, when they get old, they, they lose their sexual tendencies. They feel like, oh, you know, now I'm trying to understand life more than just just the desires for sex. And, and so at some point you realize this, whether it be when, if you're young or old, doesn't matter. But at some point you realize that there's something, there, there, this strong tendency you had at this point is not the end and, and be all for, be right. all for all. It's, it's more than that. Fantastic. Well, uh, I thank you for sharing your thoughts on this subject and I really appreciate your time. Um, is, uh, if, if there's anything else, you, any last words you want to say, um, I'll invite you to do that. No, that's it. I think, thank you. Thank you for inviting me here. It was a nice, uh, nice discussion we had. I, I learned a lot because um, I think when you, when, you, when you share some things, some things resonate with you and some things you realize, maybe I should think a little bit more about that. And so like these cognitive biases me, we may have, uh, they certainly are, are just, you know, they, they're overcome in the process of uh, discussion. So thank you for having me and uh, thank you for watching. Okay, great. Yeah.